Consider the book of Daniel. We love the timeless stories of the fiery furnace, the handwriting on the wall, and of course, Daniel in the lion's den. But then the book takes a dramatic turn toward prophecy. What do we really know about this faithful servant, Daniel? And what lessons can we gain exploring his life and writing? Coming up, we'll put Daniel in the spotlight. Welcome to The Land and the Book. Our host is a guy who has studied Israel all his life, has traveled there more than 100 times, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And I'm John Geiger. You know, Charlie, the new year is quickly approaching, hard to believe it. And before we know it, 2023 will be here. You have to ask yourself, what do you want your priorities to be for the coming year? Maybe, like me, you'd like a reminder to pray. Yeah, that's right, John. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to Land in the Book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image relating to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. This calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life and Messiah's ministry. Now, if you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Great offer. Thank you, Charlie. And now a look at current events from the Middle East. In spite of all the political turmoil within Israel and the tension between Israel and the Palestinians we've been reporting on, tourism there is still on the rise. What are some of the reasons for the increase? Well, part of the reason is pent-up demand. Israel had the record number of tourists several years in a row before everything shut down when COVID hit. Well, once Israel finally opened back up, the numbers started rising rapidly. Hotel occupancy rates for the end of this year are nearing pre-pandemic levels. A second reason for the increase is an attempt by Israel to attract new types of tourists. When we think of tourism to Israel, we think in terms of Christian pilgrims going to visit the Holy Land, and those numbers are rising. But Israel's also been adding other types of experiences to make the country attractive for those without a religious background, whether it's running a marathon in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Tiberias, the Dead Sea, or the desert around a lot in the Red Sea. They're presenting the country as a destination for serious athletes. I recently had to modify one of our touring days in the north to avoid getting stuck behind the Ironman Triathlon around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And the five-day Israel Ride, a premier cycling event, just ended this past week. Israel's also promoting itself as a conference destination, and they're looking to promote new hospitality experiences to attract younger tourists. Uh, The Dan Hotel chain, along with some others, are planning to invest in glamping. For those not familiar with that word, it's a combination of glamour and camping. Now, imagine staying in a large, air-conditioned, private tent with all the comforts of a hotel room while still having common areas for meetings and dining and water sports. Uh, One glamping resort is already in the works for a lot. Uh, In addition, other hotel chains are adding new venues throughout Israel. Uh, A total of 8,000 new hotel rooms are expected to be available sometime this coming year. Now, by way of comparison... Only 5,000 rooms were added in the five years leading up to the pandemic shutdown. In fact, before this year's over, Israel expects to have 770 more rooms across the north of the country, 2,100 more in the south, and another 1,650 around the Dead Sea. Uh, New hotels and new markets and new experiences. Uh, These are some of the many reasons for this rapid rise in tourism. Charlie, I see all kinds of ads on television, and there it's more of the fun aspect, it seems like, in addition to some of the scenic things, but they they seem to be pushing just fun, and it's all targeted at young people. 
That's exactly right. You know, the religious market, we're, we're, we're baked into their plans already. <laughs> uh, they're trying to expand into these other markets. I'm not sure if I'm ready to run an Ironman triathlon or, or go glamping, uh, but uh, certainly they see a potential market there. I don't, I don't, you're selling yourself short there, Charlie. I see you as a triathlete there. All right. <laughs> On a more serious note, is the current war between Russia and Ukraine connected to the biblical battle of Gog and Magog or to Armageddon? From President Biden to a Jewish rabbi, these biblical battles are being mentioned in connection with the current conflict. But do they actually connect with what we're seeing today, Charlie? Yeah, I got to start by saying very clearly, the war between Russia and Ukraine is not the Battle of Gog and Magog or the Battle of Armageddon. You know, when President Biden said Russia's use of, of tactical nuclear weapons there in Ukraine could lead to Armageddon, he was using that term in the sense of a worldwide conflagration. But that's not actually what the Bible refers to as Armageddon. In Revelation 16, 16, Armageddon, actually Har Megiddo, or the Hill of Megiddo, is a place in Israel where Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet will gather their forces for a final battle against Jesus when he returns. The actual battle, though, will be fought in Jerusalem. Uh, the Jewish rabbi who wrote an article titled Gog and Magog actually argued that it's impossible to equate the prophecies of Gog and Magog with specific current events like the current Russian battle with Ukraine. And I agree with him on that point. Unfortunately, he then seems to suggest that Ezekiel's prophecy doesn't point to any specific battle. <laughs> and I've got to disagree with him there. Ezekiel does describe a battle that's never yet taken place. But the plan of attack, the nations involved, and God's ultimate response do point to a very specific event. They just don't match what we're now seeing in Ukraine. Uh, the one common thread between the current conflict and the Battle of Gog and Magog is that both are started by a leader from the far north, focusing on the area of Russia. But in the Battle of Gog and Magog, the focus on attack is Israel, not Ukraine. And that attack won't last for months. God promises to vanquish the invaders suddenly and completely. Uh, the Battle of Gog and Magog is still future, and it'll involve Russia but it's not being fulfilled today. And Armageddon isn't the end of the world. It's the final gathering of an evil alliance just before the return of Jesus to establish his kingdom on earth. Now, this is a good reminder, John, why we need to be carefully reading what God has and hasn't said in his word when it comes to his program for the future. Well, I like that word, what God has and has not said. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. You're listening to a, a kind of an overview of current events from the Middle East, as we do every week here on the program. Archaeologists are always searching for new tools to help anchor their discoveries within a specific historical context. And now they believe the Earth's magnetic field can provide a way to securely date biblical events. How does this new approach work? And more importantly, is it accurate? Yeah, you know, we know about the use of pottery dating and carbon-14 dating that helps anchor discoveries, but this new technique adds a high-tech twist. It's called archaeomagnetic dating, and it's based on the reality that the Earth's magnetic field has changed throughout history. Archaeologists discovered that magnetic minerals, which had been heated or burned, record the magnetic field at the time of the fire. Now, by comparing the archaeomagnetic findings from sites where exact destruction data is known, like, for example, the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar or the destruction of Lachish in 701 B.C. by Sennacherib, archaeologists using those were then able to reconstruct a very accurate geomagnetic timeline based on changes in the magnetic field. 
Now, the discovery has already proven useful in resolving a long-running debate over a destruction layer found at Tel Beitshan. While some thought the destruction dated to the campaign of Haziel of Damascus in 830 BC, the magnetic timeline showed the destruction occurred 70 to 100 years earlier, which connects it to the campaign of Egyptian pharaoh Shishak shortly after the time of King Solomon. And indeed, Shishak listed Beitshan as one of the cities he conquered in an inscription at the Temple of Amun in Karnak in southern Egypt. So archaeomagnetic dating is another tool archaeologists will be able to use to help anchor past destruction layers to specific points in time. I really look for this technique to be used even more by archaeologists in Hmm. the coming years. Interesting. Well, as the world looks for ways to lower energy costs, an Israeli startup believes it has developed technology that can harness the fluctuations in humidity to cool and heat buildings at half the current price. Wow, half. Tell us about this latest innovation from Amazing Israel. Yeah, the company's called ThermoTerra. It's all one word written together. Uh, They started with a truth that we all know intuitively. That is, water vapor in the air, when it's absorbed onto or into something, transfers a significant amount of energy. When we get hot, we sweat. And when that sweat evaporates, it cools us and keeps us from overheating. And the opposite happens when water vapor in the air is absorbed by or condenses onto something. That process generates heat. Uh, Thermoterra's system brings ambient warm dry air into a home or office on a hot day. The heat is then stored inside the building's walls in a variety of insulating materials that can also absorb humidity. When the warm air evaporates, it absorbs energy and cools the building. And when temperatures are cooler, the cool humid air is brought in and absorbed, warming the air and heating the space. Uh, The system's controlled by sensors embedded in the walls. Smart algorithms monitor when to bring in hot or cold air and when to release it. A smart fan inserted into the wall circulates the hot air or cold air around as required. Now, the company is currently testing the system at different locations in Israel. But imagine a house that heats and cools itself using nothing but the humidity in the air at half the current cost of heating and air conditioning. That definitely sounds like another great innovation from Thermo Terra in amazing Israel. Well, sign me up. That sounds great. Thank you, Charlie, for that look at current events from the Middle East. Our website is thelandandthebook.org. Information about today's guest, past programs, and more, thelandandthebook.org. Daniel, up close, next on The Land and the Book. Consider the book of Daniel. We love the timeless stories of the fiery furnace, the handwriting on the wall, and Daniel in the lion's den. Then the book takes a dramatic turn toward prophecy. What do we really know about this faithful servant, Daniel? And what lessons can we gain from a study of his life and writing? Coming up, we'll put Daniel in the spotlight. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book, segment two of our broadcast, I'm John Geiger, inviting you to pause with me for this thought on sharing the love of Jesus with our Jewish friends. Question, what is the most dangerous chapter in the Bible for Jewish people? And how can we use that chapter to reach out to them? Greg Savitt is with Rock of Israel. What do you say, Greg? John, if this is my final answer to somebody, I will get out Isaiah 53. I'll read that to them. They normally do not know where that's from. They think it might be the New Testament. It's the most powerful because it's never read in the synagogue. It goes to Isaiah 51, Isaiah 52, whoops, we go to Isaiah 54. 
I have read this chapter to Jewish people, and at least three or four times, they accused me of coming up with a new Bible and to put in a new chapter called Isaiah 53. (laughs) And then one woman went home, and to check this, John, she was Israeli, and she went to her dad's bookshelf and pulled down the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures, and in the notes from Isaiah 53, her dad wrote, this is the Jewish Messiah. So she came to faith from it. But Isaiah 53 has some clear passages that only could be talking about Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all. All of this chapter is talking about a person, their response, they're being beaten, they're being tortured. And then you see in verse 10, 11, that this person has come back to life or is resurrected. That is the most important chapter to look with Jewish people. And I highly recommend that you would just open the text and let them deal with the text. That way they're dealing with the Bible and not you. Greg Savin, today on The Land and the Book. Dr. Joe Sprinkle is a retired professor of Old Testament. He's written a number of books based on insights he's gained studying the Old Testament, including the Daniel Commentary from Lexham Press. He joins us today to help us with insights into the life of Daniel. Hey, welcome to the land of the book, Dr. Sprinkle. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me. So let me ask you, what makes this commentary unique? I'm sure you had a reason for wanting to invest the time it takes to create something like this, a significant work. Well, the uniqueness about this commentary is really a uniqueness of the series, the Evangelical Biblical Theology uh, Commentary Series. And what it's going to do is to emphasize themes that are uh, theological themes that are in the book that also are found elsewhere in Scripture. And so uh, the book consists of a commentary on the entire book of Daniel itself. But in the end, there's about 100 pages of biblical theology that takes the themes of Daniel and, and shows how those themes of Daniel are integrated throughout the book, but also how those themes are integrated into themes found elsewhere in the Bible, uh, either elsewhere in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Fascinating. Well, early on in his captivity, Daniel takes a stand. He challenges his Babylonian captors to let him and his three Jewish friends eat a diet consistent with their worship of God. While the biblical account is silent, it seems only logical that for Daniel to have had the spiritual backbone he had uh, must somehow be a tribute to his upbringing. What do you think? I think that's, that's fair enough. He obviously uh, was well-versed in uh, you know the Jewish scriptures, and uh, that gave him the backbone to uh, resist when he was asked to do something that uh, went against his uh, Jewish scruples. Dr. Joe Sprinkle has taught Old Testament at a number of Christian colleges. He's authored a great new commentary on Daniel, and we're glad to have him as our guest today on The Land and the Book. Well, given the growing hostility of our government toward worshipers of God, what themes from the book of Daniel should we be hanging on to the most right now? What comes to your mind there? Well, a couple of chapters uh, that relate to that directly. Of course, the, the famous story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, and 
uh, Daniel in the, the lion's den in chapters 6. In chapter 3, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are asked to do something uh, completely contrary to their Jewish scruples, to bow down and to worship an image that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Uh, there's some scholarly debate over what the nature of that image is. Is the image of the Babylonian god Marduk, for example, or is it an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself, a, a deified version of himself, as it were? Either way, what Daniel's friends were being asked to do was to give homage to a symbol of the state that really only belonged to God. So if it's Marduk, the patron god of Babylon, that would be a symbol of the state. If it's Nebuchadnezzar, he would be the symbol of the state. But, uh, but either way... Uh, it raises the questions for us as Christians, are there certain things that the state may ask us to do that if we're following uh, biblical teaching that we cannot go along with? I want to focus on the character of Nebuchadnezzar. Help us understand him. He has seen God interpret his dream through Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar even proclaims in Daniel 2 verse 47, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. But then, that same king demands everyone worship the golden image he's built. Out of this comes the miraculous deliverance of the three from the fiery furnace, after which Nebuchadnezzar proclaims, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! Yet, he ends up defying God, eating grass like an ox. How could one man have so much divine, even miraculous revelation, and still end up like he did? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is an interesting character that seems to grow a little bit uh, during the course of the story. Of course, he, he's, he's a polytheist, so he could acknowledge the Jewish God, uh, the Lord, Yahweh, while at the same time uh, acknowledging his own gods, and uh, maybe even having a uh, divine aspirations of his own. But uh, through his encounter with uh, Daniel and his friends, he learns that, well, the only true God that can know the, uh, the, the mysteries are not the diviners that he has under him, but rather uh, only the Lord and uh, through his prophets like Daniel. He also uh, learns the, the great power of uh, God in the you know, fiery furnace situation, but you know he still doesn't quite get it, it, it looks like. Uh, he still has that pride that you see in uh, chapter 4. Uh, but at the end of that, he, he seems almost as if he's converted. Uh, it's hard to know, uh, you know what the reality is, but mm-hmm. uh, by the end of it, uh, and uh, you know, this is kind of an interesting thing that Despite all the terrible things that Nebuchadnezzar has done to people, I mean, he was a ruthless tyrant, Daniel still has an affection for him when he has to give him the prophecy that uh, in Daniel chapter 4 that he's going to end up uh, you know, judged by God and uh, going into uh, derangement where he uh, behaves like, uh, like, a, like cattle, mm-hmm. that uh, none, you know, he wishes that were on your enemies and not on you. He has an affection for him, and he uh, serves as a witness for him. And at the end, 
the last thing that Nebuchadnezzar says when uh, he talks about how God is able to humble those that walk in pride, yes. one at least hopes that maybe he's finally gotten it and uh, <laughs> maybe he's come to accept the true God of, uh, of the world rather than all these pagan gods that he uh, uh, was brought up with. Dr. Joe Sprinkle is a professor of Old Testament, and he joins us today for a unique look at the Old Testament character Daniel through the lens of his commentary. Well, what do you think we misunderstand about Daniel or maybe overlook about Daniel? You've invested a lot of time studying his life. I don't know whether I have a good answer for you, but uh, let me just throw out something that I find interesting about Daniel. Uh, Daniel, I think, is, is a model for how one is to relate to the secular or, or non-believing world. And so on the one hand, Daniel is a pious Jew who's going to uh, keep all of his uh, uh, religious scruples. When, when he's told to eat food that was contrary to the Old Testament law, he, he, well, he doesn't defy his uh, captors, uh, but he works with them in chapter 1. Uh, works out a deal where he could keep his conscience clean and, and yet uh, continue to, uh, to work with them. Uh, in uh, chapter 6, he becomes an administrator in the uh, government of uh, Darius and, and is one of the you know, three uh, highest officials in, in the kingdom. And so he, he's maintaining his integrity and even there, when he's told that he, you know, when uh, Darius is tricked into giving out a decree that anybody who praised any god or man other than Darius would be cast into the lion's den, he's, he's willing to sacrifice his life on that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, he's willing to learn Babylonian language and literature. He's willing to be an administrator in the Babylonian government. He's even uh, an official over uh, the wise men of Babylon, which, which have included you know, a fair amount of idolatry. He shows how you can be in the world, but not of the world. Yeah, and that's a remarkable trick to do. It's, you know, it's easy for us as Christians to either say, "Well, the world is corrupt," and we just go hide in our you know little Christian sanctuaries and and not deal with it, or to cave into it and become like the world. But he was able to balance the two and to be both in the world and yet distinctively not of the world, and be a great witness even to people like Nebuchadnezzar, who may have actually been converted through his testimony, as well as maybe even Darius, who is remarkably impressed by what God did in saving Daniel from the lion's sin. A lot of people wonder, how do we explain Daniel's absence from the story of the golden calf and the fiery furnace? What do you think? Well, uh, the text is silent, and the only thing we can do is speculate. Uh, it may have been that this gathering was limited to certain types of officials, and he wasn't in the category that was being called there, so that, that's one possibility. Uh, we do know from uh, elsewhere in Daniel that occasionally he traveled outside of Babylon to Susa, uh, and so you know, he might have been on a trip, who knows, yeah. and um, you know, might have had the flu. You know? uh, <laughs> it, it's hard, hard to say. It's, it's purely yeah. speculative as to yeah. why he wasn't there. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Our guest, Dr. Joe Sprinkle. A lot of people enjoy the story half of the book of Daniel, if I could use that term. But when it comes to the prophetic half, some of us say, that's beyond me. It's just uh, too complex. 
And, and we ask, why isn't this prophetic content more clear? Or here's, here's the real question. Would it have been more clear to ancient people? Well, it wasn't totally clear even to Daniel. <laughs> uh, when these things were told to Daniel, he, he needed an interpreter to help him to understand it. And then, uh, you know, in, at the end, in Daniel chapter 12, uh, uh, he's told that, you know, seal these things up in a book, uh, and, you know, it's only for later generations that will fully understand uh, some of the implications of the prophecies that, uh, uh, that he had been uh, given. But even though it's terribly complicated uh, in, at certain points, and, you know, there's certain prophecies that, even the best of scholars uh, can't agree on what uh, what exactly the meaning is. Mm-hmm. The, the big picture is is still there. That you know you have the uh, vision of the four beasts coming out of the sea in Daniel chapter seven, and uh, in that vision we we get the message that well there's going to be beastly kingdoms that uh, are hostile to uh, God and His ways that will show up on the earth. But that ultimately, uh, the one like the Son of Man is going to come, that would be a prophecy of Christ, who's going to establish the kingdom of God, put down all the kingdoms of the world, and uh, the little horn, which is the Antichrist figure in Daniel 7, and to establish uh, the kingdom of God. And it's a reminder that through much suffering, uh, we're going to enter the kingdom of God. There's going to be times of trouble and oppression and difficulty with uh, all these different, uh, you know, hostile powers that uh, come and go. Uh, But ultimately, God is going to establish his kingdom, and uh, that can give us uh, faith and confidence to see us through the hard times. Yeah, and hard times are on the way. And this commentary on Daniel, a great resource to get us through. Thank you, Dr. Sprinkle. Appreciate your time. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, have a great day. Well, I hope you'll stick around because we're back with a great segment next. It's Charlie Dyer's answers to your questions here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for sticking with us here at The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with segment three, a favorite for many. It's because there's so much ground covered every single week. Charlie, it's amazing to me the the things that people are curious about, uh, the, the boundaries are enormous, it seems. Oh, they are. And in fact, they, they drive me into additional study in God's Word, which I love. Uh, that's what makes teaching so much fun. Uh, when you find out where people's interests are, it actually sparks your interest in that same area. Yeah. Well, you know, before we get into the, uh, the look at our questions for the week, I'm thinking the new year is quickly approaching. I mean, before you know it, 2023 will be on the calendar. I'll be still stuck in 2022 as I write checks, I suppose. <laughs> But you have to ask yourself, what do you want your priorities to be for the coming year? Specifically, would you like a reminder to pray for those priorities? Yeah, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to Land in the Book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image related to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. This calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life in Messiah's ministry. Now, if you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, let's dive into this stack of Bible questions here, starting with Robbins. 
In 2 Chronicles 33, verse 11, why did the commanders of the army of Assyria take Manasseh to Babylon and not back to Assyria? That's a great question. And as someone who studied Babylon for so much, I babble on about Babylon. (laughs) Uh, I loved it. Now, it's a bit complex, so bear with me here. Following the reign of King Hezekiah, Assyria remained the dominant power in the Middle East, but they constantly had to put down challenges to their control. And I think one of those challenges is what brought about this near disaster for King Manasseh. King Esarhaddon of Assyria rebuilt the city of Babylon that had been destroyed by his father, Sennacherib. He then named one of his sons Prince of Assyria and made the other son Crown Prince of Babylon. Now, that's not an ideal way to balance power. And following his death, war broke out between the two rival brothers. The one ruling in Assyria gained the upper hand. He laid siege to the city of Babylon. The son there committed suicide, and the king of Assyria retook the city. He then started going after all the nations that had joined Babylon in opposing him. And it's very likely that Manasseh was one of those kings. Uh, He probably was following the foreign policy of his father, Hezekiah, who had also joined with the king of Babylon or talked with him in an alliance against Assyria. It's actually mentioned in Isaiah 39. And that could be why the king of Assyria then took Manasseh to Babylon to judge him there. Well, in his distress, the Bible says Manasseh sought the favor of the Lord and and God humbled him and brought him back and spared him. Uh, But that's likely why he was taken to Babylon rather than to Nineveh. We're going to camp out in the Old Testament for a while here as we continue with Kem's question, taking us to Exodus 12. The question is posed, will the Passover be practiced by redeemed Jews even in heaven? Can you help me with this question? Yeah, I believe in heaven and the new Jerusalem. Uh, There won't be any sacrifices since everyone present will be redeemed and in the presence of God himself. We know there's not a temple in the new Jerusalem. Now, before that, in the millennial kingdom, when Christ is ruling here on earth, I believe Passover will again be celebrated, probably as a replacement to the Lord's table, which we're to celebrate, it says, until he comes again. And then Passover will be reinstituted at that point. It'll also point back in a very graphic way to Christ's death on the cross during a time when death itself will be very infrequent. Now, I also believe this to be the case because in Ezekiel 45, 21, the prophets told that Passover will be celebrated in that rebuilt earthly temple. Uh, you're listening to The Land of the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, working us through a, a list of questions that have come in. And I like this one, another Old Testament question from somebody who says, I'm reading a text which claims God also executed judgment on all of Egypt's gods that night. The Egyptians served a multitude of gods, many of which were shown to be inept by the plagues. When I think of these gods, they're nothing but straw, hay, and stubble. So what was there to execute? Yeah, and I'm assuming the writer there is using execute in the sense of carry out rather than physically kill, though the last plague certainly did involve the death of the firstborn. Uh, The Egyptians believed the idols they worshipped represented actual gods and goddesses, with Pharaoh himself being divine. Uh, The ten plagues did take on the different gods worshipped by the Egyptians, and they showed that the God of Israel was the only true God. The death of Pharaoh's firstborn son was the ultimate judgment, since the God of Israel held the power of life and death, even that of Pharaoh and his son, in his hand. John 13 tells how Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples on a certain evening. Later that night, they went into the garden where Jesus was arrested and taken for trial. He was evidently awake all night long. In John 19, 14, it's now 6 a.m., and Jesus is before Pilate. John says it was the preparation for the Passover. How can that be when Jesus had already celebrated the Passover? 
That's a great question. And thankfully, there's also a great answer, actually several possible answers that have been suggested. Now, the bad news is it gets a bit complex. So let me try and simplify it here. The basic answer, at least the one I think is the best answer, is that the Pharisees and Jews from Galilee reckoned the start of a new day to begin at sunrise, while the Sadducees reckoned the start of a new day to begin at sunset. The Passover lamb was slain the afternoon of Nisan 14 and eaten that evening. Now, Jesus and the disciples, following the Galilean reckoning of time, celebrated Passover in the upper room Thursday evening. Meanwhile, Nisan 14 didn't begin until after sundown on Thursday for the Sadducees. So they then sacrificed the Passover lamb the following afternoon. John's description of events matches what the Sadducees and other religious officials would have been following, while the Synoptic Gospels follow the practices of the Pharisees and the Jews from Galilee. And if you say, wait a minute, how do you know that? I mean, how, how do you come up with that? Well, there's a fellow named Harold Honer. Uh, had him as a professor. He's a wonderful guy now in heaven. But he wrote a book called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And he has an entire section that deals with this issue along with several other chronological issues. That's a fascinating book to read if you're interested in chronology. Nancy asks, do people in heaven know or care what is happening on earth? And do they have any influence before the throne of God by intercession? I ask this because of all that is happening to America. Do the Christian founders who sacrificed everything to form a free nation built on God's values know what is happening here? Can those who covenanted with God to form a nation for his glory see how their country is being destroyed? Do they have any influence before God to persuade him to save America? Is it only for those now alive on earth to plead for the salvation of America, or can the cloud of witnesses in heaven weigh in as well? Yeah, you know, we're not told much about the relationship between those in heaven and on earth. I do see two passages that might give us a glimpse into answering what you're asking. Uh, the first is Jesus's parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And while it is a parable, I think it's accurately describing what's true after death. In Luke 16, the rich man's in torment. He asks Abraham to send Lazarus back to warn his brothers. But the request is denied because they already have God's word. Uh, the second passage is in Revelation 6. In that passage, individuals who had been martyred cry out to God from under the altar in heaven, asking, you know, how long is it going to be before God judges the evil on earth? But interestingly, God doesn't provide an answer. Instead, they're given white robes and told to wait a little longer. Now, neither passage is speaking directly to your question, but both suggest there's a gulf between earth and heaven. Uh, it also suggests that those in heaven aren't able to influence God or get him to alter his plan. God calls on us, the living, to pray and to cry out. We're the ones who are to intercede for those around us and for our government and for the world. We're told to pray for those in authority in 1 Timothy 2 and to pray for other circumstances like the peace of Jerusalem, you know, in Psalm 122. We're also commanded to share our faith while we have the opportunity, and we can pray and ask God for revival, according to Psalm 85. But those who are already in heaven apparently don't have the ability to influence God when it comes to what's taking place here on earth. You're listening to The Land of the Book, Questions and Answers. Here's one from Patty. Are Nazarite and Nazarene the same, since Jesus was a Nazarene? Yeah, actually, a Nazarite and a Nazarene are two different and unrelated words. Uh, Nazarite comes from a Hebrew word that has the idea of uh, to abstain or to separate, and it refers to a special vow of separation to God. Uh, the word Nazarene comes from a Greek word which has the idea of belonging to or from Nazareth. It was used to designate the town from which Jesus came. So Jesus was a Nazarene, but we're never told that he was a Nazarite. 
Charlie, just a minute or so to go. One last question from Terry. Why in the book of Luke did Elizabeth remain in seclusion for five months after she became pregnant? Well, we're not told why she went into seclusion for the first five months of her pregnancy. And as far as I can tell, it wasn't a cultural expectation at the time. Now, there are several possibilities. She might have wanted to be sure that uh, she was indeed pregnant and it was going to survive rather than sharing the news with others. Or mm-hmm. she might have to, wanted to avoid you know, just as long as possible the attention and excitement that would come when friends and relatives learned she was pregnant. Or she might just have wanted the time alone to praise God and thank him for the miracle he'd done. But the reality is we're never told. Uh, Mary didn't find out until she was told by the angel Gabriel, and it's possible she might be the very first person who, uh, apart from Zachariah and Elizabeth, actually knew that Elizabeth was pregnant. Now, uh, I say that because in verses 57 and 58 of Luke 1, it says, when it came time for her to have her baby, she gave birth to a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and shared her joy. So it sounds like that's when they really learned about her pregnancy. Well, I have really enjoyed these questions today, and yours is welcome when you email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional, next. Hi, welcome back to The Land of the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger thinking that there's few things more disturbing than a leaky roof. Few things that that get you more upset. You don't know where that leak is and it's doing damage to your home. And well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Charlie Dyer takes us to a, a story in Luke's gospel, the man who needed a new roof. Charlie, they needed roofs back then as they do now. So must have been a concern then as well. It was, and uh, much like today, uh, this one was connected with an act of God, but not in the way we might think. All right, I'll look forward to that perspective from Luke 5. But first, how about a Holy Land experience? Someone who's been to Israel and now comes back seeing life and Scripture differently. Check this out. Hi, my name is Diane Doyle, and um, before I came on this trip, I was very psyched up, of course, and one of my prayers was, Lord, Show me the significance of Jerusalem. I'm now more familiar with the layout of the land and the scriptures are more meaningful to me, such as the scripture. When I was stood in Jerusalem and I heard this read, as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. And that's from Psalm 125. And there I was with mountains all around me and realizing that three times a year, the people of Israel would come to Jerusalem to worship. This just brought in a whole new meaning to me. You know, you never really begin to value how important your roof is until it starts leaking. But there's a guy in the Bible who needed a new roof after something rather substantial happened. Charlie, I think your devotional is taking us there to Luke chapter 5. I want to start by sharing a story. Over the years, I've had to replace two roofs on houses. In both cases, the roof was damaged by a violent storm with hail nearly the size of golf balls. The insurance company calls such storms acts of God. Uh, Thankfully, within a few weeks, we were able to get a roofing company to come and repair the damage, and insurance covered most of the cost. I know of at least one instance in the Bible where someone needed to have his roof repaired. And I imagine he would have had uh, trouble getting insurance to pay for his damage, though, because in his case, the act of God took place after the men got done working on the roof. 
but I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's slow down and look at the story of the man who needed a new roof. The event took place in the town of Capernaum, right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the basic story, though each focuses on different details of what took place. But by putting all their accounts together, we have a good idea who owned the house that needed the new roof. Just before the roof was destroyed, all three writers tell us Jesus was a guest at the house of Simon Peter. And that leads me to assume that the roof in question was the one on Peter's house. This incident took place early in Jesus's ministry. In fact, it happened just after Jesus had called his first disciples, but right before he called Levi the tax collector, the man later known as Matthew. If you've not figured it out by now, the story I'm talking about is the story of Jesus healing the paralytic who was let down through the roof by his friends. They tore through the roof to get their friend into the presence of Jesus because the house, the entryway, and the street in front were packed with people waiting to meet the miracle worker. During his earlier visit to Capernaum, just a few days before, Jesus had healed many who were sick and cast out demons from those who were possessed. A short trip across the lake and back brought additional stories of the sudden calming of a storm and the dramatic encounter with demons and a herd of swine. And now Jesus was back in town and the crowds were as frenzied as those at a modern rock concert as they pushed and shoved to force their way into the presence of this suddenly popular rabbi. Unfortunately, the scene was discouraging for a group of men arriving in Capernaum right then. They had walked for miles carrying a paralyzed friend on a wooden pallet, hoping to bring him to Jesus to be healed. But Capernaum's narrow streets and throngs of people filling them brought this band of brothers to a screeching halt. The way to Jesus was blocked. And that's when one of the friends had a brilliant idea. If we can't get in through the door, let's try the roof. Now, here's where our cultural background can create problems. It's easy for us to envision a modern pitched roof house covered with shingles and see men with hatchets and saws up on the roof cutting through the rafters while trying to keep their friend from rolling off his pallet. But the typical first century house in Capernaum was built of rock with wooden beams stretched across the top to support a flat roof. Smaller pieces of wood were then spread diagonally across the beams and these were covered with plaster. A small wall or parapet extended around the edge of the flat roof to keep someone from accidentally falling off, while an outside staircase provided access. Archaeologists have also found that in some cases, these roofs were covered with clay tiles, similar to some of the roofing still in use today. Installing clay tiles on the roof definitely made it stronger and more durable, but it also added weight, requiring more structural support and definitely increased the cost. Tiled roofs were more rare, and a house with a tiled roof was a more luxurious home. The three gospel accounts all tell the story of the paralytic man who was brought to Jesus by his friends. Mark tells us the friends had to dig through the roof in order to lower the paralytic down to the spot where Jesus was seated in the home. But Luke adds one additional detail. He says, and not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher right in the center in front of Jesus. Luke lets us know these friends had to pull off the heavy roof tiles first and then dig through the plaster and wood underneath to create a space large enough to lower this paralytic down through the opening. Their hard work 
left a gaping hole in Peter's roof. As I said before, when we have to repair our roof, it's often because of some act of God, like a hailstorm. But in this story, the work on the roof preceded the act of God. Let me explain what I mean. In response to the faith displayed by this man and his friends, Jesus said to him, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, since only God can forgive sin, I see Jesus' words as a definite act of God. But I also want to make sure you don't misunderstand what Jesus just said. It wasn't their action of digging through the roof that brought forgiveness of sin, but their faith. They dug through the roof because they had already come to a decision about Jesus. They believed he was who he claimed to be. They believed he had the power to help their friend. And it's because of their faith that they sought to reach him, no matter what the obstacles. It was their faith that prompted their actions, not the other way around. The religious leaders were highly offended by Jesus' words. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Forgiveness of sin, much like a flood, tornado, or hurricane, is an act of God. And then to show he was God, and indeed had the power to forgive sin, Jesus provided a more visible demonstration of his power. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise and take up your stretcher and go home. And that's just what the man did, leaving Peter with the world's first skylight. I would love to have been there to watch that man being lowered to Jesus from the hole in the roof. But not everyone understood the significance of what had just taken place. And that's sad. So as we get ready to leave, what is it we need to learn from Jesus' encounter with this man lowered through the roof? I think the best lesson is the very one Jesus wanted to teach the religious leaders of his day. He has the power to forgive sin because he is the Son of God. So let me ask you, are you paralyzed by sin, hopelessly trapped in a life that seems incapable of responding to God? Jesus wants you to know that he has the power to forgive sin and to grant new life. And just like that paralytic on the roof, all you need to do to receive it is to come to him. You know, Charlie, I'm hearing your devotional, and I can't help but think, I'm sure there were skilled craftsmen back then, but when that whole thing was done, the guy was healed, the crowd dispersed, everybody goes home, somebody had to fix that roof. Yeah. And and, and there was a patch there, and I, I suspect that even with the best craftsmen, there was probably a little hairline crack there. And can you imagine the stories that were told every time there were visitors? This was the place. Yeah, that became the reminder of the amazing thing the Son of God did right in that house. Isn't our God great? He is. Just amazing. Thanks for that perspective. You know, if you appreciate the land and the book, why not send an email to the management of this station? There's lots of competition, lots of pressure on the people that bring you quality Christian radio day in and day out. And we're grateful to be on this station. Let them know that you are too. Thanks for sending them an email or a card or postcard, whatever you got. But do say thank you. And speaking of thank you, I want to thank Charlie Dyer, our host, Dan Anderson, our engineer and producer. I'm John Gager. See you back next week for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.